0: Shalom! Good to have you all here tonight. Such a blessing. As we were praying, I I thought of how great a God we have to meet all of our needs in this life. The very same God that gave Daniel the dream and the interpretation to give to Nebuchadnezzar. The same God is here tonight. The same God that we have come to praise and worship and learn about is the very same God that split the waters of the Red Sea. The very same God that sent manna from heaven to feed His children in the, in the wilderness. The very same God. So what are we worried about in this life? <laughs> what do we have to worry about? I mean, there, there are concerns. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about what's happening in this world, but but every time we face something, God faces it with us. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's pretty good because we're pretty close to the end of the age. <laughs> so I think we should thank God for that, you know, and thank the Lord Jesus who did what He did for us. You know, we talk about a lot of miracles and, and uh you know, we're coming up to Christmas and people say, you know, there was a tremendous miracle. Of course it was, you know, that a, a virgin would bear a son. It was prophecy years and years before it happened. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Great miracle. But just as that was a great miracle, so was the miracle of taking us from death to life. Taking us from the darkness into His glorious light. Oh, we have so much to thank God for. Well, let's look at all of these things here tonight. (laughs) I think i got the right scriptures up there tonight. Daniel 2, verses 41-49, the rest of the chapter. We're going to do a little bit of review on what we were covering last time. Of course, Daniel had, uh, had become a, a wise man, quote-unquote a wise man in, in Babylon, along with his, his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, and uh, of course, they all had their names changed. Because they were now in captivity in Babylon and, and uh, the Babylonians did everything they could to take these Hebrew young people, young men that were very smart, very wise, very uh, very much uh, uh, in, intellectually uh, uh, greater than they, maybe most of the people that came uh, with them to captivity and, and they took them for a reason. Babylon took these young people and, and, and really just wanted to change their whole mindset, change their whole way of doing things. And so, they put him to, through a three-year intensive course on Babylon and Babylonian language, which is, of course, Aramaic and, uh, uh, learning the ways of the Chaldeans and the, you know, learning about the, the gods and the religions of the Chaldeans and, and the foods. They, they said, you don't eat your food anymore, you eat our food. But then, of course, we know what happened when Daniel said, no, well, you, you just test us in this. We'll eat. But well, we want to eat as far as, you know, the vegetable and the pulses, uh, the pulse and whatnot. And, and God proved his, his way to be much greater than that of the Babylonians. But then came this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And he had this dream that no one could interpret. No one could even tell him what it was about. And, and he said, listen, you know, go throughout the land and, and kill all of these wise men. And of course, on the, on the very same list was, was Daniel and, and, uh, his, his friends. And when Arioch, the, uh, the one who was called out to execute these wise men, came to Daniel. Daniel said, let me, let me tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is. And let me interpret it. And you stop killing the wise men. And of course, last time we looked at what happened, Daniel, in fact, came to Nebuchadnezzar, pleaded for time for the sake of praying, for the sake of seeking the face of God, and God gave him the dream. God gave him the interpretation, and he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar. And we saw what that dream was. Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of a, of a statue, a, a very large, large statue with a head of gold and a chest of of, of silver and a, and a midsection of, of bronze and legs of iron, but then his feet had a mixture of iron and clay. And then Daniel proceeded to to give the interpretation of that, and that's about as far as we got, is at least knowing what those uh, metals represented, and we'll come back and review that if you weren't with us last time, but... We'll come back and review that, but I want to start reading in, in verse 41, though, because uh, we didn't spend as much time as we wanted to on the issue of the, of the iron legs, which is ro- the, you know, the Roman Empire that we talked about, and uh, then, of course, the feet of uh, iron and, and clay and what happens af- after that. And I don't want to go into great detail because, in fact, when we get to chapter 7 of Daniel, we're going to see how related the vision is or the dream is in chapter 2 with that vision given in chapter 7. So there, there are some important connections in those two chapters, and we'll, we'll kind of build on it as we move along. So, anyway, this, this has to do with, the, with the, the, the feet of iron and clay. It says, And whereas thou us the feet and toes, and remember there were ten toes, of course. Last time I checked, I think I had ten. Uh, I know some have checked and have a few more, and some a few less. But uh, this is ten, so this is a pretty regular set of toes here. Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. So there's there's a sense in the fact that even the legs themselves, if you remember last time, and we'll get back to that in a moment, but the legs, which represent, of course, the... the uh, um, Roman Empire, the legs were divided. I mean, there's two legs, okay? So we we realize the Roman Empire was a divided kingdom as well. But then it goes into the feet, and it talks more about the the division. There are two feet, and of course there's ten toes. Uh, but there shall be in it a, a, of the strength of the iron, there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. So there's a little clue now of what that uh, what, uh, that's kind of representing. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. You know, if you try to mix iron and clay or try to make something using those two uh, those two media, uh, or mediums, or media, uh, if you use them both, they, they don't really mix well together, okay? So, that's the idea. And so, in verse 44a, it says, And in the days of these kings, directly speaking of the kings that are mentioned in the last uh, section uh, of, the, uh, of the vision, which are the legs and especially the, the feet and the toes, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, and notice the progression going back up toward the head of gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. So what is going to come to pass when these particular uh, designated parts that become nations, when that's going to be, we'll be told of when it's going to be in just a moment. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. I don't know how many of you know who this man is. I, that's the best picture I could find on the internet, but that's A.W. That's Tozer. Uh, he was a pastor... of uh, Churches, both here in the states as well as in Canada, known very much today for many of his writings. A lot of his sermons were transcribed into books, and and uh, some have considered him to be a prophet of, of of modern times. Even though he passed away in 1963, uh, nonetheless he wrote did most of his his uh, uh, his greatest works in the 50s and the 60s. And uh, sometimes when you read those things, he, it kind of uh, It almost sounds as if he's here today, you know, kind of really prophetic in a lot of senses, or a lot of ways. But before we begin our study, I want to share with you A.W. Tozer's devotional for today uh, in his book called Renewed uh, Day by Day, which is actually a compilation of of daily devotionals. And this is what it says, and I quote, Those who still read and trust their Bibles in the midst of the nuclear age. So it kind of... That's kind of dated, isn't it? We don't call it the day in which we live the nuclear age, but we understand what that is. You know, back, back when they were already experimenting after World War II with with the uh, 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 the atomic bomb and all of that, we, we fell into the nuclear age, and now we, the, you know, every nation that wanted to get the, the bomb, it was, you know, really to destroy more than it was to help. I mean, certainly that, a bomb like we saw uh, destroy... Um, Two cities in Japan back in World War II. Anyway, those who still read and trust their Bibles in the midst of the nuclear age have found a great truth and a message the rest of the world does not know. After the warlords have shot their last missile and dropped their last bomb, there will, be, there will still be living men inhabiting this globe. Now those of you who have just finished studying the book of Revelation with us recently understand that, that that's going to happen. There will still be people on the earth. And he goes on, he says, After the world has gone through the meat grinder of Armageddon, the earth will still be inhabited by men, not biological freaks, but by real people like you and me. If the world can escape annihilation only by adopting the ethics of Jesus, notice what he says, only by adopting the ethics of Jesus, as some think, we may as well resign ourselves to the inevitable explosion for a huge block of the Earth's population is controlled by communists, obviously, it was writing back in the 50s or 60s, uh, whose basic ideology is violently anti Christian and who are determined to extirpate every trace of Christianity from among, men, uh, among them. Other large blocks are non Christian and grimly set to remain so. That statement, other, uh, other uh, large blocks are non Christian, actually can. Probably referred to the the Islamic uh, surge that is greatly around us today. But they're non-Christian and grimly set to remain so. Anyway, he goes on and he says, The West, it is true, pays lip service. Listen to this. The West, it is true, pays lip service to Christianity, but uh, selfishness, greed, ambition, pride, and lust rule the rulers of these lands almost to a man. While they will now and then speak well of Christ, yet the total quality of their conduct leaves little doubt that they are not much influenced by His teachings. Now listen to the last uh, sentence that he gives us, or the last uh, uh, paragraph. All this being true, still we Christians can sing at the foot of the threatening volcano. Things have not gotten out of hand. However bad they look, the Lord sitteth king forever and reigneth over the affairs of men. How appropriate this devotional is as we continue in our study of Daniel chapter 2. And you you think about Daniel for just a moment. Daniel being taken taken out of his own land, taken into captivity by a ruthless king and a ruthless people. whose only desires in taking these people over there were to be servants and and, and to serve in, in slavery for their own reasons and for their own good. And yet Daniel is one who really becomes that example of one who trusts God implicitly, trusts Him fully in his heart and in his life. So that if there was any praise going on at all in Babylon by the by those who were taken captive, it was going to be like it was going to be men like Daniel and his brothers, Hananiah and and uh, Mishael and and Azariah, and they would have said the the very same thing. God is in control. And he's king forever. And he rules right now. You see, one very important truth about uh, upon which Daniel stood while while in the midst of such a pagan society was that his God, the God of creation, the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was sovereign and in complete control of all things at all times. Just like he is today. No matter what kind of chaos we see, no matter what kind of, of uh, society uh, is falling apart around us each and every day, God is still in control and He's still in control of all things at all times. At all times. And this was Daniel's respectful but biting truth to Nebuchadnezzar, going back to verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and he said, the secret which the king has demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. There's not a person in this whole land that can tell you what you're asking for. You want to have someone tell you the dream and the interpretation that you, that you received? But there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. And make us known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. What shall be in the latter days. Anytime you see that phrase in the latter days, especially in the Old Testament, we're not dealing with just a a few years following this particular captivity. We are talking about the time of Messiah. It will always refer to the time of Messiah. Messiah. The latter days, this is the reason why within the, the context of the, of the dream and interpretation that there is that stone that we see cut without human hands. That's obvious that it isn't anything or anyone that is human. At least in the sense of, of just pure flesh. It's speaking of Messiah. Messiah. And he went on to say, Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And he tells them the dream. In our last study, Daniel provided Nebuchadnezzar the two answers to his stipulations given to the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers, which they could never give. He gave him the dream as the king received it from the Lord. And and let's remember, he received it from the Lord. He received it from the Lord and he gave him the interpretation of that dream, he saw. Uh, this is just a drawing, of course. You know, there, there's a lot of more, a lot more fantastic stuff on the internet. You know, you could see all kinds of gold and all. You know, but there, there's a reason why I chose this. There's a couple of reasons because, first of all, what it says at the very top, Daniel two, God's revelation for Israel. Let's not forget that, that this revelation that 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 Nebuchadnezzar received, of course, was about the. Becoming Gentile kingdoms, as they would affect the nation of Israel. Where was Daniel from? He was from Israel. Later on, as you begin to see all of the all of the uh, prophecies and the dreams and the visions that are that are given throughout this book, the whole aim is to give revelation about the nation of Israel. Prophecy, We say it time and time again here. Prophecy is centered on the nation of Israel. The reason why there are so many uh, false prophecies being given or, or at least very uh, misunderstood prophecies about the end times is because many times they are trying to figure things out without Israel being mentioned. You can't do it. Israel has to be at the center of all prophecy, or else there really is no prophecy. Because then you would have to spiritualize everything, and that is exactly what the church tried to do early on. All the way back, you go all the way back to Augustine, who spiritualized much of the scriptures because they did not want to give any credence to a nation of Israel any longer. There wasn't one, they were scattered. And the thought came into mind that Israel no longer exists, so now we as the church become the spiritual Israel. The sad thing is that for thousands of years, that idea has remained. Yet there were a few people uh, throughout the ages, throughout the history of the church that said, no, there's going to be an Israel because God promised it. There's going to be an Israel sometime. It may not be in our lifetime, but sometime there will be another Israel. There will be people back in the land because God is going to restore the land to them because that's what He promised. It's hard to spiritualize that. So then, May 15, 1948, or May 14, 1948 happens. What happened? Israel became a nation. And for some, the prophetic clock began to tick again. All you had to do was put the battery in again, you know, replace the battery. But it began to click again and tick again. And, 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 and now, you know, you, then you, you got to the late 60s, early 70s, and, and people were beginning to say, you know, the Lord could come at any moment. The Lord could come at any time. Let's get ready. And there was this increased interest in the rapture of the church and on and so on and so forth. None of those things would matter if there wasn't an Israel now. So prophetically speaking, everything that we talk about as far as prophecy in the the end times, latter times, latter days, it has to be centered around Israel. Joel Rosenberg calls it the epicenter. The epicenter of all. The Word of God is centered right in Jerusalem. The place where God is going to send His, His Son back in to sit on the throne of David and reign. So, that's where we're at here. I mean, this, is, this is why that was important to, to point out. There's a head of gold Babylon, breast arms of silver, Medo-Persia, belly and thighs of brass, Greece, or Macedonia. And the legs of iron Rome. And then below that, of course, you'll notice the feet, uh, kind of a mixture of 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 iron and clay. And then the stone that uh, actually falls on on the feet. That's only a foot there, but it's going to fall on the feet. So as mentioned last time, the head of gold represented the Babylonian kingdom, the chest and arms of silver, the Medo-Persian... Empire, the valley and thighs are the sides of bronze, symbolizing the Greece. Grecian or Macedonian Empire, the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. The chart adds, here some significant details and information. First of all, the metals used for the statue in the dream all increase in strength, but decrease in value, right? So gold, the most valuable. Silver, the next most valuable. Brass or bronze, much less valuable, but more valuable than iron and iron. But each one is stronger. Silver stronger than gold, uh, brass or bronze stronger than, than silver, and then iron, of course, stronger than all of them. But interestingly enough, at the feet, there's a mixture that, uh, seems to really, uh, lose strength. And so there's the decrease, uh, in value. But then notice in the, there's an arrow going down about the middle of the, of, the, of the chart there. It is decreasing in character of authority and rule. So as we mentioned before about Babylon uh, was the absolute monarchy. Nebuchadnezzar with a monarch above the law. He was the law. The Medo-Persians came and they had monarchs that were not above the law and they could not even change their own set of decrees. If they made a decree, they couldn't change it. That was kind of interesting. The uh, Macedonian Greeks ruled by military force. So the governors that were actually, the four governors that were overseeing four areas of the, of the known world at the time, uh, held by, by the Greeks, who were originally uh, conquered uh, with, uh, by Alexander the Great, uh, they were really generals. They were kind of overseeing things and they ruled by force and and the but then the romans who defeated the greeks they, they were ironically and i say this they were ironically an imperialistic republic that ruled somewhat barbarically degenerating into mob rule at times if you know a little bit about the history of rome it, it was crazy you know, some of the you know we 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 tend to think that they're You know, they they established a lot in philosophy and and politics and stuff. But uh, many times because of the the emperors, uh, the imperial part of everything, they ruled rather uh, crazily. And while these kingdoms decreased in character, they actually decreased (coughs) in strength. Or I should say increased in strength. If you'll notice the, the arrow on the far right, there was an increase in strength. Babylon Medo-Persia was, of course, stronger to beat them. Greece stronger than the Medo-Persians and, and Rome greater in that particular sense. They increased in strength. But what an apt description of Gentile rule, especially in these last days. Character today in leadership of, of nations has decreased tremendously. Nations have increased in strength, technically, militarily, and so on. But at this time, most nations are being led by iron and clay. That's where we are, iron and clay. Things aren't mixing well. Very quickly, they're very small, can't, can't <laughs> really see much other than that I was going to point out that uh, in that first square on the left on top, that's the Babylonian Empire. If you'll notice, very small because it was just covering this particular portion of, of the world at the time, but that was the known world at the time, the known uh, civilized world as, as it's been said. And then the Medo-Persians came and they expanded out a little bit further out. They went into Egypt here and, and then into Macedonia, the area there, while Macedonia was growing in, in, in its stature. Eventually, uh, the Grecian Empire grew even more. You'll notice the Roman Empire at its height, all the way to Britain, and then all of northern Africa, and then all the way over to the Caspian Sea, the Black Sea. So much, much bigger. You know, just giving you an indication of how things transpired there. So, let's read on here. I want to go back one verse to verse 40 and begin with the the, the fourth kingdom of iron so that we can get into verse 41 a little bit better. The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. In other words, whatever it whatever it comes to attack, it's going to break into pieces. It's going to hurt. Uh, and that is the Roman Empire that's being described. And historically, that's what they did. And then, in verse 41, it says, and, "And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron." The kingdom shall be divided. And of course we know that the kingdom was divided, of course, ancient Rome was, was there was a western and then an eastern part of it. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with my clay, that of course being in the feet, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong. And partly broken. So there's a a, a mention of a kingdom. The kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Nothing in history indicates that has happened already. So therefore it's something that is yet to happen. I'll talk about that more later. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Here's a question of great importance. If the Babylonians were defeated by the Medo-Persians and the Medo-Persians were defeated by the Grecian Macedonians and the Greeks were defeated by the Romans, then who defeated the Romans? That's the question. Who defeated the Romans? Now historically, no one kingdom defeated the Romans. Not No one kingdom defeated the Romans. Truthfully, the Roman Empire broke in pieces as it rotted from the inside because of the great moral decay that was inherent in Rome. In other words, it destroyed itself for the most part. And those pieces that were broken never became world empires by themselves, although some have tried several times. If Rome, in this particular case, represents what we call today Europe, or European nations, or the European community, or whatever it's called nowadays, uh, then consider this. France had its day in the sun, didn't it? so to speak, under Napoleon until defeated at Waterloo in 1815. Let's go back a few more years before that. Spain, with its armada, had become a powerful nation, but it was defeated by England in 1588. Then the British Empire itself was extensive in its global reach, But in the early 20th century, it was weakened over its position concerning Israel and Palestine. If we could put it in kind of blunt terms, Britain got on the wrong side of Israel and that was all there was. (laughs) In effect, it got on the wrong side of God. And of course, Germany. Germany had great power twice. First under Bismarck, who was called the Iron Chancellor. And then, of course, Adolf Hitler, who liked to be called the Fuhrer. And we all know its outcome. But as as a whole, and I, and I think that this is very significant for us, if we're telling some of our teachings from the book of Revelation to this one, that we remember how weak Europe in itself it is in and of itself today. I mean, it can boast a lot of power because of numbers, but it's really weakened from within. So there is some connection that, that, that Europe is going to have as far as in a revived, quote-unquote, revived Roman Empire. but as we pointed out suggestively in the book of Revelation we, we've missed, we've missed a, a, a piece of the puzzle for many years until just recently and when I say just recently I'm talking within the last 13 years or 14 years so Concerning the feet of iron and clay on the image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what do they represent? The iron and the clay. Are the feet of iron and clay with its ten toes not so much another kingdom, but is a restored progression of the Roman Empire? I would kind of keep that in mind. Not so much another kingdom in the sense of a powerful kingdom, but one of a restored progression of the Roman Empire which progressed to have covered a lot of ground, but much of its power was actually on the eastern side of it. And much of those who were part of the Roman Empire and part of the armies of the Roman Empire were actually the Syrians and the Arabs. Because that's how they got their armies. That's why they were so strong. Time to think and hold on to that thought of who's in the land today. So to some extent it has to be a kingdom that is a restored progression of the Roman Empire, but the description of this, lamp, this last empire is really unique because it does not fit historic Rome. It does not fit historic Rome. The two legs may be, or may find a counterpart or an equivalent in history in the division of the Eastern and Western Empires in 364 A.D. By the way, if you didn't know it, one empire was under a person named Valens and the other under Valentinian in 364 A.D. But there hasn't been any situation that resembles a tenfold kingdom of nations. And so this would mean that the ten toes represent nations of kingdoms that are yet to come. So that has to be very significant. It has not yet happened, so it is yet to come. The iron, of course, represents the Roman Empire, but what does the clay represent? See, that's, that's the question we didn't ask in the book of Revelation because we didn't want to touch upon it until we got here. What does the clay itself represent? Let's look at, at several passages in the Scriptures just for a little bit of understanding. Isaiah 64 verse 8 says this, But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father, we are the clay and Thou art potter. We're the clay. Are we getting any ideas now what clay is representing to some extent? We are the clay and thou thou art potter and we all are the work of thy hand. If you look at Job chapter 10 verse 9 it says, Remember, I beseech thee that thou hast made me as the clay and wilt thou bring me into dust again. Now, I heard someone say Israel earlier. And to some extent, yeah, it is. But not just. Because here, Job is talking about himself. Or the person speaking here is talking about himself. Which means that any of us could say the very same thing. Because of what we're made of. What were we made of? Going back to creation from dust. Then there's Isaiah, going back to Isaiah 29, verse 16. Surely your turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he had no understanding? Does the clay say that the potter didn't really make me? Because that's, that's the irrational uh, and unreasonable aspects of people today. They say, you yeah, know, there's no God. Nobody made me. I made myself. No, you didn't. Even if there wasn't any God, you didn't make yourself. But then in Jeremiah 18, verses 4 through 6, it says, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel that seemed good to the potter to make it. And then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Well, house of Israel can I not do with you as this potter saith the Lord behold as the clay is in the potter's hand so are you in my hand O house of Israel now God uses specifically about Israel but then Paul the apostle in Romans 9 verse 21 says has not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor and you put all of these verses together and many more that deal with clay. And what it is speaking of, generally speaking, is that the clay is representative of man. Clay is representative of man. And by mixing the strength of iron with the weakness of clay, you have a kingdom that is inferior to all the previous kingdoms. Think for a moment. That with the diversities of people today, this kingdom will not be in unity amongst each other. It will not be in unity amongst each other. Iron speaks of firmness. Clay, it's brittleness. Clay breaks apart. Can't really attach itself to the iron. I think the sad part about this, when we look at our world today, and and maybe we could just start even with our own nation here. In the short time that, that the United States of America has been around, In comparison to, of course, all the other ancient uh, civilizations and and whatnot, uh, we're just still relatively babies, but uh, why did we become so powerful? We can talk about the fact that uh, we became very powerful because the establishment, the the, the foundation of this nation was rooted in in the Word of God, rooted in, in the praise and the worship of God. But where have we gone since that time? We've been a divided nation. Think of the Civil War. Think of all of the stuff that happened after Reconstruction. Everything that was going on, you know. But we worked and, and you know, we became a melting pot of people from all different nations. we become one. But are we one today? It seems like we're more divided now than we've ever been. Politically speaking, culturally speaking, religiously speaking. 9-11-2001 seemed to have brought this country together for a short amount of time. But what has happened since then? And what is God going to have to do to get our attention again? Or to wake us up? That's why the, that's the reason why the church has to be the vigilant ones, for the sake of this nation. At all times. And always. Because iron speaks of firmness. And clay, its brittleness. And clay breaks up because man, isn't anything but clay. <clears throat> but who wants to be in charge of everything today? Man. <laughs> Man without God. Again back to our study, there are many speculations that can be con- can be made concerning a future revived Roman Empire and, and certainly over the past 50 years or so there were certain indicators that were seemingly pointing to the empire being Europe in some form, but but with the rise of radical Islam, uh, the religion of it and the ideology, uh, I- ideology of it spreading throughout, listen to this, spreading throughout Asia, whether Asia Minor, so, going to, actually in, to some of the Far East areas, uh, and then going to, from Asia to Europe, and then Africa, even even to our shores. And with the fact that much of the world's thirst for oil is found in much of the, of the Arab Middle East... This factor has caused many students of prophecy to reconsider the symbolisms in Daniel, in the prophets, and in the book of Revelation. Suffice it to say that we will talk much more about the ten toes and what they represent when we study chapter 7. But it's something to think about and something to to keep considering... and i'm i'm going to be bringing it up a lot as we get through these next few chapters especially to chapter 7 the, the 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 heaviest duty chapters about these prophecies of course is chapter 2 chapter 7 chapter 9 and chapter 11 and but everything in between is important too so I, you know we don't want to discount anything in our study of book of daniel but but that's the thing this is what we just need to have in front of us is, okay, this is what we're looking at, the mixture here. We can't, we can't yet define everything clearly yet, but we will be able to define it a little bit more when we get to chapter 7. And I just don't want to get ahead of, ahead of ourselves here. So let's look at verses 44 and 45 of our text because this is what goes on. Now if you look at it in a general sense, all of these things are going to happen in the latter days and then something else happens. And that's verses 44 and 45. And in the days of these kings... "...shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed." I would say that that would be clear to us who read the Scriptures and know... ...that there are certain things happening prophetically... ...and have been happening for thousands of years... ...and we are beginning to see really the, 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 you know, the, the end approaching. And uh, so we speak of the kingdom that is, that is of, of God coming down to this earth. Because Jesus is going to come and rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years... So we know that. And so, in the days of these kings shall the God of, of Kevin, uh, the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. The kingdom is not going to be left to anyone else. It isn't going to be left to flesh. It isn't going to be left to clay. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. God's kingdom, not man's kingdoms. <laughs> The experiment of man being in charge of everything has failed, and has failed radically, and it has failed completely over all these years. So there's one kingdom that we wait for. That is the kingdom of God. But it's going to come in a great, mighty way. And it's going to break in pieces and consume all the other kingdoms. (laughs) Whatever was planted from Babylon... And by the way, when does Babylon really begin... It doesn't just begin for us in 586 B.C. It began all the way back where? The book of Genesis. In the plain of Shinar. Where man decided to make a tower of themselves. They made it out of clay. Bricks. You know when God builds stuff, He builds it out of rock, stone, doesn't He? But what do we do? We make things out of bricks. (laughs) And they built the Tower of Babel. That's the foundation here. Babel, lawn, it's all connected. That's not just a coincidence, by the way the very gods that that Daniel uh, and and his and his friends were were being uh, forced to believe in forced to serve they go all the way back thousands of years before babylon verse 45 for as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands The mountain without hands, of course, the mountain meaning kingdom. God's kingdom. But out of that kingdom is a stone, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. In other words, God is making you, Nebuchadnezzar, know what's coming. Because Gentile kingdoms is starting right here. And it is the Gentile kingdoms that is going to affect the very life and history and conclusion, in a sense, but a conclusion in the good sense, of the nation of Israel. The Gentile nations, and it begins with Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. In other words, I'm letting you know, this is it. Exactly what you wanted to hear, that's what you heard. So if we ask the question, when will the Lord return to set up His kingdom? The answer would be, would simply be based on these two verses, verses 44 and 45, during the days of the confederacy of ten nations. Whatever that's going to be. But it is yet to come because we realize it has, has, yet, it has yet to happen. And the stone that is not cut out with, uh, with human hands or the stone that is not cut with human hands will strike this image and all that it represents, the whole image with the head of gold and all the way down to the feet, it's going to strike this image and all that it represents, causing it to break in pieces, to crumble and to be blown away, never to rise again. I mean, that's it. Man has had his opportunity to rule and to, and to reign to some extent, but it, but never like God, because you see, God is in control. As we said from the very beginning, God is in control, He is sovereign, His 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 Kingdom reigns and, and, and will reign forever and ever. The foundation, of course, as it has been described clearly and by Daniel's interpretation, the foundation will be weak because it will be based upon the strength of men. I'm talking about the you know, the Confederation of Nations. It is going to be weak because it will be based upon the strength of man. Beware of putting confidence in man. Beware in putting confidence in man. Beware of putting confidence in flesh. One of the great passages of Scripture, simple but profound, is Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. I think that's pretty simple and it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. The next verse, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Because there's man, and then there's those who rule man, who are just man anyway. It's been counted, you know, the numbers of verses and stuff in the Scriptures from beginning to end. They say that the very middle, the the very balance of the whole Bible, as far as numbers of verses go, is right here, verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 118. The balance of all Scripture on these two. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men and in royalty. And this rock... That is not cut by human hands is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. He is the rock. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. There is no one else. Our Messiah. Our Savior. Our Lord. Our Master. He's the rock. And it is His kingdom that will be established forever, not man's. And then we will see righteousness fill this land as the Prince of Peace. Jesus the Messiah takes His throne. Well, by the way, we're told in 1 Peter, if you'll turn to 1 Peter in the, in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Peter says, Wherefore also it is contained in the Scriptures. And when he says that, of course, that's speaking of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Elect, precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So if you believe in this precious cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ, you will not be confounded. You will not be confused about anything. And then in verse 7 it says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. Is he precious to you tonight? Because if he's precious to you, then, oh, what a joy! "...but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And so to those who believe He is a precious stone, but for those who ultimately will reject Jesus Christ, He will be a rock of offense." that will eventually crush them righteously and justly. Given, having been given every opportunity to come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, to the mercies of God, but to reject it. It's not so much that Jesus is just going to go on this rampage because didn't, people didn't believe in Him the scriptures tell us that Jesus came to fulfill the law he did not come to destroy it but to fulfill it and he fulfilled it for us by dying on the cross and shedding his blood for our sins and being buried on the third day rising again from the dead conquering sin and death on our behalf who believe in him therefore we are counted righteous not by what we've done Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us. And that's what He's cried out to everyone. But those who reject that, then will have to face the punishment of the law. That's the point here. Take for instance what Jesus said in Matthew 21 verse 42. Jesus said unto them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous. In our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whosoever it shall fall, it will grind into powder. Now this is something interesting. To fall upon this precious stone who is Jesus Christ. If we have fallen upon that stone, what will it do? It will bring any person to brokenness in spirit. That's the point that, that Jesus was making. It brings any person to a brokenness in spirit to seek the Lord and to receive Him as their Savior and Master. Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. which thou, O Lord, will not despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, thou wilt not despise. Took me a second. Brain's not working. I'm glad my heart is. To those who reject Him and refuse to humble themselves before Him, they will be crushed like powder. Sin will be judged, in other words, to the full extent of the law of God. But to as many as receive Him, to as many as receive Him, John 1, verses 12 through 14, as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Let's get to know Jesus as the Word made flesh. And then we'll understand what it means that the the Lord becomes the rock. He is first and foremost the rock of our salvation. But He will become a rock of judgment for those who refuse Him. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, Daniel spoke the words of God with confidence he spoke the words, of, the words of God with certainty and boldly proclaimed the truth of the dream and the interpretation to be sure to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, they're sure, this is right. He wasn't boasting, he was just saying this is right because it came from the Lord. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Let's finish this chapter here very quickly. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel <laughs> and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. He's got worshiping Daniel. See, they, have to, they, they these people, like just, they just worshiped anything, I mean, sometimes. But, 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 you know, Daniel proved, you know, that his God was greater than the gods of Babylon, so he worshiped Daniel. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Daniel wasn't like, Hey, get up, get up, you'll be worshiping me. But, nonetheless, the king answered unto and, 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 and Daniel, and he said, Of a truth it is, that your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst... Reveal this secret. Thou could. You could reveal this secret. And then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel requested the king, well, if you know, if you, I don't want you to stop giving me stuff, so here, let me, yeah, let me ask you one more thing. And he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king in the higher place by the king. So I would say that Nebuchadnezzar was impressed to say the least. What astonishment it must have been to those in the king's court to see him bow down to a lowly Hebrew slave who hours earlier could have and should have been executed by the king's decree. Isn't that something? So who did we say was in control? One thing is for sure. Nebuchadnezzar knew that it wasn't Daniel himself who revealed the things he had heard. It was Daniel's God. The God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of secrets. That was all knowing, that was all powerful and always present among his servants. And because of the outcome, Daniel was promoted, placed over the royal province of Babylon proper, and chief over the wise men in the entire kingdom, which did not make them happy, as we shall see later. But not only was he promoted, but he also got his friends promoted as well. May I say, as we close, Daniel will never be lost in history, simply because he never compromised his faith. Daniel will never be lost in history simply because he never compromised his faith. Be encouraged and dare to be a Daniel in these days that we see the formation of this last empire. And my prayer for our time tonight is, even so, come, Lord Jesus even so come. Shall we pray?